Real quickly, before we get into today's episode, I uh, just wanted to let you guys know I started a Patreon account for the podcast. Um, so if you enjoy the show, um, would like to support, you can go to patreon.com slash the photo banter. I got a couple different tiers on there. Um, you can get the episodes a few days early if you're interested. Um, but yeah, any support is greatly appreciated. This kind of helps fund the podcast and keep offering more content, and more episodes. Um, so if you're interested in supporting, you can go to patreon.com slash the photo banter and it's much appreciated. Welcome back to the photo banter podcast. I got a special episode today for you guys. I'm really excited about I welcome back returning guest, photographer Michael Segaris. Michael is the longtime team photographer for the San Francisco 49ers and has been documenting the NFL for over 60 years. He's actually out at the Super Bowl today in Las Vegas, where he'll be photographing the San Francisco 49ers as they take on the Kansas City Chiefs in the Super Bowl. Um, Michael has photographed over 40 Super Bowls throughout his career and recently published an incredible book titled Fields of Play which is a collection of his photos and stories from his over 60 years of photographing the NFL. An incredible book with the Ford from Joe Montana and also other incredible um, essays from Hall of Famers like Ronnie Lott and many, many more. Uh, Michael Segaris is a photographer who's I've respected for many years and just has a dedication and passion and still has the enthusiasm for what he's doing uh, well into his 70s. Like I said, he's going to be out there photographing the Super Bowl um, in Las Vegas today. So I was excited to get him on, um, hear about his journey with photography, the NFL, and what he's looking forward to in shooting the game today. So I hope you guys enjoy this one and thanks so much for listening. All right. Well, I now welcome back on. A returning guest, uh, Michael Segaris, uh who's at the Super Bowl now. Uh, a viral sensation the last few weeks on social media. Uh, how's it going, Michael, out in Vegas? You know what? I, I actually I tweaked my back, so I've got some leg pain happening. Yeah. And I'm, you know, I'm doing what is it? Ibuprofen. I never I never do shit like that. But my, our team doctor said do it. It'll knock down the inflammation. So it's probably saving me from going wild on the strip. <laughs> Although I've got to tell you, Las Vegas, not a fan, never a fan. I often tell people if I had to choose between living in Las Vegas or hell, I'll take hell because <laughs> at least I'll know some people there. <laughs> um, but excited to talk to you again, man. I know we've been talking for like the last week or so. Um, I guess like the Super Bowl week, this, how, how many, you've been to like over 40 Super Bowls at this point, right? And photographed them. Yeah, this, this is, you know, I had to actually sit down and calculate it. Cause I don't, you know, I don't keep track of stuff like that. This, this is number 44. So it's kind of my Hank Aaron, Willie McCovey Super Bowl tribute. What's how much it, it's obviously changed a lot. You were at the first one, right? No, I mean the first Super Bowl I ever went to was Super Bowl eleven. Okay, that was in Pasadena, January of seventy seven. Raiders Vikings. I was actually covering the game for Rolling Stone magazine. Did did Rolling Stone cover sports a lot back then? No, they didn't. But they had tried to do a big feature on. Um, Al Davis at one point in time and Hunter Thompson was going to be the writer. 
I was going to be taking pictures, but, uh, Al Davis wanted some samples of Hunter Hunter's writing before, you know, he was going to sit down and do the interview. And Hunter and I are at practice at the old Raider practice facility in Alameda. We've been there about 30 minutes. And, you know, when Hunter showed up, he had a, a copy of hell's angels and a magazine called Scanlons in which he had a long lead story called the Kentucky Derby is decadent and depraved. And after about 30 minutes, Locusel came down, grabbed me by the elbow Hunter escorted us off the field, out of the practice facility and told us that he, if he ever saw any of us, either of us at that facility we're at the Oakland Alameda County Coliseum again. He'd have a warrant for our arrest, thrown, you know, sworn out. <laughs> and at that point, I thought, well, I, I guess I won't be shooting football. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and that, that, that Super Bowl, the, the league at one point was going to pull Rolling Stone's credential. Damn. But um, I ended up shooting, and it was great. It was, you know, it was the last super bowl played in the daylight interesting wow yeah and and you know what i i actually circled back because the incident with hunter and i and locusel that happened almost three years before loki luckily forgot that i was the photographer and i'd shot you know i covered a number of raider games for nfl properties and I hit Loki up to buy two tickets for my then girlfriend who, you know, Kristen, who and will now be celebrating our 50th anniversary together wow. for her and a friend of hers. He sold me two tickets, every ticket in the stadium face value, $25. Damn. <laughs> I know. Times have changed. I just looked. I looked before I got on the call because I was curious. It's like eight thousand dollars for the cheapest ticket right now to go to the game on Sunday. Yeah, it's it's insane. I mean, that. But you know what, Alex? That's happened. That's our country, and that's that's everything. That's the NBA. That's Major League Baseball. That's anything decent in entertainment. You know. Most people that want to see you two who are playing here at the Sphere, yeah, you can't go. You can get well. You you can get a couple if you wait till the night of the performance. They'll have individuals you might be able to get for three hundred dollars. But most of it's a thousand dollars a seat. Yeah, but even like even three hundred is crazy. Like it's so much money. Even me, like I live in Boston, and the Boston Celtics is like I love the Celtics, but it's like to sit in the nosebleeds now. Like it's two hundred dollars just to go to to get one ticket. I'm just like it's fucking yeah. crazy, but. I, guess, I always tell people, I remember I saw, it was John Mayall, Keith Hartley, Albert King, and Jimi Hendrix at the Fillmore for $3.50. Shit. <laughs> and you got a free apple when you came in and a poster when you left. You got photos of that show? No, that show actually, I had gone with my cousin and we dropped some killer psilocybin and I was right under the you know right in the front of the stage and i thought i was Jimi hendrix that night (laughs) (laughs) this this is like the 60s yep oh i think it was 1968 
like when you, I was when I was talking to our mutual friend Brad Mangin, and we'll get into the book and everything, uh, Field of Play, which is incredible. And for me, looking at those images and looking at your older work, I was interested for you to like look at your older work from like the sixties and seventies. Like, does it seem does it seem like a different world? Like to me, because I didn't grow up in that era, and it seems like I can't relate to it. It just seems like a different world. Like when you look at those pictures from so many years ago, like how do they make you feel? And like, does it seem like a different lifetime ago at this point? Well, you know what? Sometimes, I mean, anytime you look at anything like that or listen to music, it all depends on your headspace at that moment in time. Sometimes I'll look at some of those pictures and I'll immediately go right back to that moment. I snapped it. I mean, not just looking at that still image, but you know, I can almost smell the grass. I can remember who I was going out with, you know, what I was doing in that month, you know, like the, some of those early pictures of, of, uh, the Packers, yep. um, when I'm, you know, the color shots, when I was making my own credentials, mm-hmm. it kind of brings it all back. And, and, and you know what? Yeah, it was a different time, but when you're living it, you don't, you're, you're not reflective. You're in the moment. And, even when you know it's cool, you don't realize how cool until later on. Yeah. And um, the older you get, the faster time goes. Tom Waits had some kind of a line that's you know encapsulates that philosophy in the movie Rumblefish. But it's true. You know, when you're young, time seems to just lag. But the older you get, the faster it goes. I mean, I don't feel much different now yeah. than I felt then. But, you know, your, your, your body ages, yeah. but your soul, and, and that's what you are, you know, whether you call it soul, energy, that's the same. And, you know, when you look out, you know, unless you're blind to your eyes, it's the, the eyes are the window to the soul, and you're, you're kind of seeing everything the same way. And reacting the same way, and it—that's—that's that's why everything now, it's so much. It's speeded up, and everything has become so money oriented. And one of the problems we have in our society now, and on the planet, there's a such a large and growing gap between haves and have-nots. And I mean, you know, twenty-five dollars for a Super Bowl ticket. Um, my brother and I used to sit in the bleachers at Candlestick Park. It was 90 cents. We're talking 1960, 61, 62. Look, I know things change, mm-hmm. but I mean, the way, the way it is now, it's, it's absurd. I think, I think, and I was talking to Manjin about it. The, the, one of the things I took away from your book and, um, reading it and kind of getting to hear the stories about you, like traveling back in the day, shooting sports or, and all that is like, it seemed like there was like a camaraderie with the people you were working with and like the relationships you had. And I even noticed it in myself now with like technology, like so much the way people communicate now is through like text messaging and email. And it's yep. like, people don't, and that's what I actually appreciate, appreciate you about you, man. You're always like, call me on the phone, call me on the phone. Like you're not a text message guy. And I, I think people need more of that. And that's what I kind of envied about obviously getting to go to all those games were cool and you got to photograph these amazing things but like the thing i took away from the book more than anything was like there's this a sense of like 
these deep relationships and friendships and like the colleagues you got to work with back in the day? Yeah. Well, you know what? More than a different time. I mean, it was before the avalanche of technology Mm -hmm. and you had to communicate one to one. Um, There, there weren't iPhones. I mean, there weren't, there weren't even phones you talked on unless it was, you know, a receiver in your house. Yeah. So you had to go out and talk to somebody or you wrote letters. And now when I call somebody, I mean, most of the people that work for teams or the, you know, the record companies or whatever, they're, and I'm generalizing when I say yeah, it, yeah. they're from mid twenties, to early thirties. If, if you can reach them on the phone, they're almost like, Oh yeah. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> they have to talk or, or worse. If you come into the office to go, Hey man. And, and they, it, it's almost like, you know, Stasi has arrived at their door in Eastern Germany. <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's true. It's insane. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Cause for me, that's a, it's a cool thing about photography. It's like the experiences and the people and like the, for me, the photo is like the, the gift at the end, you know, it's a, uh... well, it is. And you know what, when you're, when you're communicating with people and a lot of what I do, it's as much about connecting with someone as about taking the picture. Mm-hmm. It's in it. And it's a relationship. And, and I say that, you know, we, we talked about text and email. I could text you, hey man, fuck you. I could, <laughs> the words, yeah. depending on the, where your head is at. Yeah, you might laugh or you might go, you know, what? Fuck. Yeah, there's and no, there's no context. Actually, yeah. yeah, and if I'm there and say it to you, you'll tell by how my face looks, by the inflection in my voice, yep. whether it's a joke, a throwaway line, mm-hmm. or a real like, fuck you, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's true. It's uh, definitely different times. Um, but I guess for like this week with the Super Bowl, like what keeps you excited about going out there and shooting this game now? Because like obviously like we talked about it before. It's such like a commercialized thing. And I know you're at media night the other night, and which is just like a whole circus. But like what keeps you going? What are you excited about this week uh, with the game on Sunday, I guess? You know, honestly, I'm I'm – the one thing I'm excited about is the game on Sunday. And I'm glad I'm here with my guys, with my team. Mm-hmm. I, I, it's, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I feel part of this and it's to me, it's a game for sure, but it's much more than a game. Yeah. You know, it's almost like the big rivalry in high school and it being with these guys from the end of July till now, you, you develop a bond mm-hmm. and there's an energy. And, you know, we've been through a lot. I mean, them much more playing with each other and practicing day to day. But, you know, it's, it's almost like a family. So there's, there's a lot on the line. I'm looking forward to us playing well, to us winning. And you know what? A little uh, to avenge the Super Bowl where we lost to Kansas City when we blew that 10-point lead in the fourth quarter. Yeah. So, and, and, and it means a lot. And you know what, too? We've got a great team. Yeah. We're stacked. But you know what? Every year, it changes a little. And as good as we are, we may be back and, you know, win this on Sunday and win the next three. But we may never be back again. You don't know that. Yeah. So, I, I, savor, I savor these moments. And especially at my age. You know, it's like, 
this this could be the last time. Yeah. And you know, I only go now to the Super Bowl if my team's in it. Okay. Because, because first of all, there aren't enough. There are very few outlets that can cover it anymore. And you know what? It's a long season, and I do baseball as well. If it's not my team, it's it's a different. You know the the parties are different. It's it's not the atmosphere it was even twenty years ago, mm-hmm. where you knew most all of the photographers, you knew a lot of the journalists, and it was a lot more fun. This is now so many corporate people that you never wanted to party with. <laughs> and it's a network. You know, it's, it's a networking it's, event for like business people essentially at this point. Cause like no, no, yeah. right. Re- no regular person can afford $10,000 for a ticket. It, it, it's all corporate tickets and all that stuff. Yeah. I call it the chip and Muffy bowl because <laughs> only chip Muffy and their corporate friends can <laughs> attend. You know, a lot of people that do make this game because it's a big event. They're, I equate them with the same kind of people that go to church once a year on Christmas. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a different thing for me. And, and you know what? There aren't many people that have been to all of them. At, you know, at one point, and even 10 years ago, there were, I think, seven, seven photographers yeah. that had shot every Super Bowl. Yeah. And I think there were eight or nine, you know, journalists, print journalists, that had covered every Super Bowl. I think now it's down to maybe two or three or four. Yeah, it was, that. I think it was like... Uh... Because it was like Walter, and it was a couple other guys. I think it went up Walter, to... John Beaver, Mickey Palmer. Um, I'm, I, I hate doing this because then I, I leave somebody out. But yeah, they, you know those guys. And I mean, Mickey hasn't shot for a couple of years. You know, he's he's suffering back problems. He's up Massachusetts. Walter hasn't shot for a couple of years. I think I think Beaver is the last person left. That's incredible. That has shot every Super Bowl. And, you know, it's funny because John was – he got that famous picture of Bart Starr sneaking over for a touchdown in the Ice Bowl in uh, December of or January of 1967. And, you know, his dad, Vern, legendary Green Bay Packers photographer, he said – I think John was 16 at the time in high school. He says, John, you go – in the end zone and get anything that's happening. I'm going to stay here on the bench with coach Lombardi to get some reaction. Mm. And that was the beginning of John's career. Wow. And I remember SI used that as a double truck opener and he's pretty much retired now. And, and you know, the story of SI, they, they got rid of all their, their great photographers. And, and, uh, John just comes out of retirement basically to shoot this game. Damn. That's incredible. And then I think uh, Brad told me for years, uh, one of your uh, uh, fellow photographers, uh, Tony Tom Tomsick, who was a photographer. Oh, Tomsick. Yeah, oh, yeah. He, he shot it for years, and I think you guys used to room going to the Super Bowls back in the day, right? It, we did, and I mean, and Tony was a treasure. I mean, great. I mean, he was like a larger than life person, bombastic, great photographer. Tony had all the great Jim Brown shots. Um. I remember he, t- he told me how his dad, when he, I think he was eight years old, took him to the World Series in Cleveland, 1948 Indians Red Sox. And, I mean, he shot Ted Williams in the Florida Keys for Sears catalog. He's told me a number of stories, and I wish now I would have 
you know, as somebody tells you the story, mm-hmm. you not only take it in your mind, but you could have like a videotape of it yep. because it's, you know, when, once he was gone, even when I retell the story, it's not the same as him. No. And that's, that's history. And that's, and it's passed down that way. And, and that's a different era. You don't see many people able to do that anymore. No. And one thing I was interested in, like, what was, like, the relationship with, like, photographers, um, like, back in the day or even now, like, on the sideline? Is it, like, a, is it like a competitive thing for, like, getting space? Or, like, was there, like, a camaraderie with a lot of the guys you were shooting the games alongside? Or, like, what, what was kind of the vibe and relationship with everyone this, at these games, I guess, as a photographer? Well, back in the day, there were it, the sidelines were much more crowded, mm. um, and it depended on the city you went to too. But there were a ton of photographers, and there was both camaraderie and there was competition, mm-hmm. and is like anything else. And you had friends, and then you, you had guys that you knew of or didn't know very well, um, and wanted to know them better, or would say, "Think that's a great shooter, but what a fucking asshole." <laughs> and, just, just like in real life. Yep, I mean, yep. it, it's just like that. And, and, and you know what? Players, the same thing. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're in the in the beginning and in the end. I want to say they're just people that have this extraordinary skill set. Yeah. Um, but they're often plagued by the same doubts, insecurities, um, personality defects that we all have and they're all, you know, it's like high school. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are some guys you want to be around whether they're good players or not. There's some photographers that are great storytellers. They're just good people. Now, if you notice there aren't that many people on the sidelines no. and especially at professional events, you know, there are as many TV mini cams as there are still photographers and, you know, the league two years ago, they took over the control of the sidelines in the, in the sense where the, each team I think has 32 armbands that the league gives them Mm -hmm. and they dole out who gets an armband. And part of that goes to each team's photographers. Some teams have one, some, some have two, a few have three, their social media department, their video department, and then the rest go to Getty, AP, Select Wire Services, um, and then daily newspapers. Well, newspapers, as you know, are disappearing. Um, AP has a deal with the league right now, and I say right now because everything's right now, you know, subject to renegotiation. They've got... I think three or four Getty has something, but there aren't that many people on the field. Yeah. And you, and, pro- you, you know, probably, you can't get the shots. The, the, the shots I love the most in the book are the black and white shots of like the Raiders. Cause there's this like on the sideline, you literally have like a wide, wide angle lens and you're like right up in their mug. And it's like, it, those photos don't even happen anymore. It seems like it's this, you, you can't even get access really to take those pictures these days. Well, two things access as you know in anything you're doing yeah. is everything yeah i was able to do that because 
that was kind of the style I shot with. I mean, I shot action too. That's what everybody shot. And, you know, one of my early influences was Robert Ryder. And I thought it was as important, if not more important, to get personality shots, to get photojournalistic shots on the bench, in the locker room. One of the reasons I, that was my style to start with, but that's also, that's, that shows the passion. I still have access with the 49ers. I, I had access like that with the Raiders. Mm -hmm. And again, it was a different time. I knew John Madden. um, I knew Locusal. They knew I wasn't going to burn them. They knew I had a love for the game. And, you know, I turned the Raiders on to pictures. With the Niners, the, the really the key thing, and I, I think I talk about it in the book, is when Bill Walsh got the job, mm-hmm. I went and met with him about two weeks into his tenure. I knew a little about Bill. I knew that he was a student of history. I knew he was an intellectual. He was well-read. And so I pitched him, and I said, look, I think you're going to do great things here. Um, and I want to record this, not as a football photographer. I want to record this as history. I, and in order to do that, I'm going to have to have complete access. And he says, well, what do you mean? I said, coach, I want to be able to go on the bus for the players. I want to be in training camp. I want to be in the locker room, pregame, halftime, postgame. I want to be on the bench in the planes. I want to record it all. And he listened and he said, oh, let me ask you something. What happens if you go too far? I said, coach, honestly, inevitably, at some point, I will go too far. All you have to do is just look at me yep. and, I'll, and I'll know to back off. And you know what? Coach Waltz looking at you, that was heavier than if Mike Ditka ran out. 10 yards onto the field and grabbed you by your face mask and screamed at you. You got it. I mean, he would like sear his eyes <laughs> into your soul. Yeah. And then it, maybe, and then maybe not speak to you for a week where you're just like twisting in the wind. Yeah. Cause there was, there was, there was one story. I think it was like a halftime or something. And you were like, you went behind the chalkboard. They used chalkboards back in the day, and you were getting yeah. low behind the chalkboard to get this shot of the whole team, and he just gave you, like, dead-eye stare, like, get the fuck out of here pretty much, right? Well, you know, that was actually at halftime of the Super Bowl, yeah. Super Bowl nineteen at uh, Stanford. And I, in the Super Bowl halftime, you have 20 minutes. I think you have eight minutes now. Mm-hmm. But I'm in the back, and I'm shooting, and so now I move along the side of the wall getting a few more shots and then I'm kind of parallel to coach and I'm thinking took a couple more and then I thought you know a really good shot here would be a low shot with you know I had a wide angle lens part of the blackboard and coach and then the players in in the background and so I got down first on a knee and then I kind of almost laid down kind of shooting up and Bill was making a point on the board and backed up and almost tripped and fell over me and he he turned around and goes, Mike, Jesus Christ, it's the fucking Super Bowl. Yeah. <laughs> and I immediately like oh. just got up and went to the side of the room. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, but you got you got to push it to get that shot. You know, you, you take the shot, apologize after. That's that's the uh... <laughs> exactly, exactly. 
Hey, imagine doing that with Parcells or or no, Belichick. No chance. Or Coach Lombardi. Yeah, not yeah. Belichick would never do it. Um, because what was it about Bill Walsh? Like, what what type of guy was he? Because like you talk about him um, with so much respect in the book, and um, what, did that relationship just kind of grow more and more after that first season of really documenting everything? Oh, it did. And, you know, we became good friends and, and, you know, he was unlike, I want to say unlike most coaches, he was unlike most people. Mm-hmm. He was always curious, always reading, always, um, stretching out and searching. And, you know, he was, he was really big into boxing, mm-hmm. loved boxing, um, loved reading. I mean, we could talk about politics. We, I mean, there were so many subjects you could talk about. And again, in the end, he was Coach Walsh to a lot of people, and he was to me, but he was, he was a person. Mm-hmm. And he was a really interesting person that you could say, that, you know, and we were friends. Yeah, one of, one of my think, fa- favorite pictures, one of my favorite pictures in the book, I think it's, he, he's in the locker room, and I don't know if it's at halftime or after the game, the whole team's in the locker room, and he's just like sitting on the ground, like leaning up, leaning up against a wall or something. And he's just like, he's not like sitting in an office or something. He's there with the team like this on their level. Even like your, your real famous picture of Joe Montana when they're on the field and Joe needed a breather and he's just got one knee down. He got down there and, and met Joe at the point. It seemed like he was really, he, he met the team where they're at. I think that's kind of what's said in the book. Well, you know what, too? He, I think the picture you're talking about is right before we come back again, Super Bowl 19, we'd come off the field for pregame. And now you've got about that 20 minute period where you're getting ready for the game. Everybody prepares in their own ways. Some guys are silent. You know, some guys have towels over their heads. Some guys are nervously pacing and Bill picked all that up. And so he went and sat down against a wall and then started talking, not out loud, but just in a voice loud enough. So a number of the players around him could hear that, hear him, but he was talking purportedly to himself saying, I don't know. I don't think these guys are ready. These guys are going to probably get their ass kicked. <laughs> you know, it's another way of him motivating them. Um, Cause like you've gotten to be around like so many different coaches. Like, what do you think like sets like a, a an incredible coach uh, apart from the others? Like, because you've gotten to be in between football and baseball, um, it's a hard job managing. Like, especially with football, it's like over fifty guys. Like, what do you think makes a good coach in a professional sports? I mean, I could talk for hours about what I think makes one, but I think in the end, it's something you can't really articulate it's mm. an intangible yeah. it's the same thing as what makes a great leader um somebody that by his mere presence commands attention um may only say a few things but you can tell he's a leader and he inspires people you know a great quarterback is like that I mean, anybody can jump into the huddle and start yelling and, you know, Let, let's go, guys. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody, yeah, there, there's another guy might come in. We're down a touchdown with 40 seconds to go. He might just come in and say, okay, guys, this is us. Let's fucking go. Yeah. We're scoring. Here's the play. 
And everybody in the huddle, when they hear it, not only believes it, but it's like, yeah, let's fucking go. I'm riding with you. Cause and you can't, which, that's what a leader is. You just, you hope if you're a coach that you have one guy like that and, and that you're like that, you know, a really good coach too. He's only as good as the assistants he hires mm-hmm. because they're the ones doing, you know, the defensive coordinator, the offensive coordinator, the position coaches, they're setting the table and you're, you know, you can design plays, but you know, you may be a defensive specialist. You better have a good OC. Mm-hmm. And then you're also, your job is as much to communicate with the media and be the face of the team for the media and the ownership. Yeah. Uh, what, what's it like then photographing Brock Purdy? Cause this kid's like, I, it's it's incredible. Cause the kid, I think he's like 24 young dude thrown in the mix, this kicking ass. And I, I can't imagine being 24 walking in and he, he's got a, he's got to be the man in front of like some of these guys who are veteran players in the league. Like what's it been like kind of getting to see him play and document him um, since he's been with the Niners. He's, you know what? He's one of a kind. He's, he's very unusual. He's, uh, he's very soft spoken. He doesn't, he doesn't say a lot, but when he says something, people listen. And again, what he, he brings to the team. And I think it was apparent to most everybody very early on what he really brings you can't coach mm-hmm. you're born with that i mean the field vision the there's a word for it and i just can't grasp it right now but i mean he you believe in him and what he can do and what he's going to do is he infallible no he you know every, all of us make mistakes when he does he owns up hey i didn't do this right but everybody believes in him. And, you know, he's each France, each franchise. If you could have a player like that once in one or two generations, you're doing well. And we really lucked out getting him when we did, whether he would have been the third round draft choice or the 242nd. Mm. I mean, I file that shit under check swing home run. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty incredible. <laughs> and like, how have you like because your skill your skill obviously incredible photographer but much of it is like i would imagine is this being able to connect with these players like i know just from reading the book you still have long-lasting friendships with players from the team be it like joe montana ronnie lott and all these guys um how have you been able to connect with players over the years and has that kind of relationship changed over the years with this the way professional sports is now or like what is that like these days I mean, I'm not as close to these guys as I was to Joe's, you know, from the 70s and the 80s. Mm-hmm. Let's remember, and this is key, at that point in time, we were all pretty much the same age. It was just like rock and roll. Yeah. When you're all the same age, you have so many more touchstones yeah. that you can connect. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't listen to the same, a lot of the same music or go to some of the same places or dress quite the same as some of these players. Now Mm -hmm. we all did then. And you know what? It wasn't just sports. It was music. The same thing. Mm -hmm. I tell people when I was doing, you know, the stones like Zeppelin, Peter Frampton, we were all the same age. And in many respects, as good as everybody was in their individual field, 
they were still like, oh, fuck, can you believe we're doing this? This is not fucking great. And that was a lot of it. I was, you know, the fact that I played ball all through college, I played two sports, I was always into music. Yep. I, I revered all of these people the way you'd look up to somebody when you're a freshman in high school, it's a senior, but I also knew there were people and I was, I was just myself and I've always acted around them from day one, the way I would in high school, because in the end, you know, that's why I do this. I, I never went to school for photography. I'd always taken pictures from the time I was five or six years old, but I had no formal training nor had I ever thought about being a photographer. It, for me, it was an entree when I was done playing sports. It was an entree back into the world that I missed. Mm-hmm. For, for music, I couldn't play an instrument, but I wanted to be in the band. Well, if, if you're not in the band, the only other people backstage are the road manager, maybe the manager, occasionally a girlfriend or a groupie and the dope dealer yeah, and the, and the photographer. And that allowed me to become what I was shooting. And it was much like the Stanislavski method in acting, acting where you, you become who you're portraying. You literally become them. And it al- the cameras always allowed me to have that experience. Mm. Um, and I use the camera as a mirror to reflect what I'm seeing and then in turn share it with other people. And that's why I've always liked the behind the scenes, the bench, the locker room. I wanted to also bring people into that world so they could see what it's like. Because most people, you see the games when you're there in the stadium or on TV or the pictures in the newspaper it's all action. Mm-hmm. This brings you into their world. And it's, it's the most interesting world ever. Yeah. Cause that's like the most amazing thing. Like a lot of people probably don't realize with like professional sports. Like I know I've shot like baseball and stuff and those guys, they get to the field. Like some dudes like seven hours before the game. And there's this like so much to document in that. And I'm sure it's the same with football. They all have their routines and there's so much like that goes in and builds up to the actual game. Yeah. Well, and that's what I try to bring out in the football book. Mm. Um, The tension, joy, um, the shots where guys are getting shot up. Yeah. I wasn't trying to be exploitive. This is what players, some players have to go through to play these are the sacrifices that some players make to be on the field both for themselves so they don't you know the guy behind them doesn't take over if they're injured too long or to help their teammates you know 80 percent of this guy is better than 100 percent of the other guy Mm. and i wanted to bring all of that out to give a really true feeling a complete feeling of what it's like to play the game and, and, and people I've had people say to me, well, you know, some of these guys are like gladiators. Mm. <laughs> I go, 
bro, they're not like gladiators. <laughs> they are gladiators. Yeah. And they lay it all out 20 games a year. Many play with injuries that most people, if they had them, not only wouldn't play the game, they'd probably be in the hospital. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's crazy looking at all the old photos, like the old helmets that guys used to wear, like comparing it to now. It's just like night and day. It's different. This the equipment and everything. Yeah. Oh, no doubt. No doubt. Um, with with your book, Field of Play, which uh, everyone should go pick up a copy. It's still for sale. Um, how did that book all come together? Like, I know you worked on it with like Brad Mangin and Steve Fine and some other people. Like, what was kind of how did that kind of all come together for you? And what was kind of the process of putting it together? Well, I, you know, I thought about doing something like that for a long time, but the, the real catalyst was the pandemic because for the pandemic for a year, everything was shut down. Yep. I mean, and, and I think people forget there was about a three month period where most people didn't leave their house. Yeah. It's crazy. And, I had time and an opportunity to start going back and looking at slides, boxes of things. I mean, honestly, if had that not happened, I wouldn't have done that book Damn. now. And, and putting a book like that together, I mean, to do it properly, you really have to go back and look through, if not all, most of your stuff. And the longer you've shot, the more there is. And I was really fortunate to have Brad, who lives right across the bay. Mm -hmm. He was over once a week. Yeah. And, you know, he, Brad is such a great editor, not just because he's got a great eye for pictures, former newspaper, great magazine photographer, you know, arguably one of the two or three best baseball photographers in the country, mm -hmm. maybe in era. He loves, he loves sports. He loves photography. So he'd come over and sometimes we'd be there two or three hours going through pictures. Yeah. This, not this telling stories and then got Steve involved. And, you know, Steve had talked for a long time. Hey, when you do a book, man, I want to be the editor. And Steve now, you know, he was, photo editor for 25 years at SI mm -hmm. and he had this gig at Meta but it, it enabled him to get away so he flew out three different times and would spend two or three days and we you know go through things and you know gradually willow everything down and I was fortunate to have a publisher that believed in the work and was willing to stick his neck out and use the best paper um, we printed it in China. I had Ian, who was my graphic designer. He's from London. Yeah. Brilliant. He could have just as easily have been with hypnosis in the seventies. And they did all the great album art coming out of England. Um, he has a great artistic aesthetic. He understands what it needs. I mean, you can have the best photography in the world. If you don't have great graphic design, mm -hmm. that's like a top chef throwing something on a tin plate and giving it to you. <laughs> yeah, it, It's not that the food wouldn't be good, but it, 
you know, it's as much about the presentation. And then I was fortunate that I had Steve Cassidy to write. Steve and I had done a number of projects for NFL properties. Steve also ghost wrote for John Madden, um, did his radio, you know, radio interviews, traveled with John on the train. And, you know, we had, it was like, when I was with Hunter Thompson, only better. Um, and having him come back into the picture, I mean, it was a joy. I mean, you know, the real fun, and we all talked about it, it was doing the book. Yeah. It was, I mean, it was great when it came out, but then it was almost anticlimactic and it was sad because it was about the journey. Yeah. And the stories. And yeah, having the time to like look back at all your work and, this the stories and everything because it's just like everyone's just living a fast-paced life and you don't really have time to sit down and have those conversations and remember like when brad was posting the pictures of you and steve and brad at your house just editing through the photos and it, it, it was incredible to to watch because it's like yeah the book there's just like so many uh different textures to it from from like the paper and like i, I love the uh the gold touches to some of the pages and then you even yeah that was that was ian's idea yeah. it was like it's he showed us it was like oh fuck this is dynamite yeah. yes thank you and even the, my, the if you take off the the paper sleeve of the book it's incredible because i think the front uh the the front cover is is it a picture of kizar uh stadium i think it's a polaroid it's a polaroid of kizar stadium yeah and i could see up on the hill I mean, I know nobody else is going to notice my house. Yeah. And and then the back picture, <laughs> I thought this is, you know, got to have this because <laughs> I wanted the book also to reflect the era. And back in the 70s and early 80s, yeah. when we come off the field after pregame, yeah. you know, we had about 15 minutes before we took the field again. I would just go out the back door of the uh, dressing room and, and we're in the player's lot. And I'd fire up and burn one. <laughs> yes. So I thought, you know, and Dennis had a picture of me, you know, I've got a Cossack hat on. I'm holding a joint out. Yeah. And I thought, this is part of the earth. Yes. Ronnie Lott, I think, told me, he says, Z, and you never told me you did any of this. Why didn't you come get me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it was incredible. And this, and this getting to hear your story, like, it really starts from the beginning. This kind of, you, you, you write about your parents and, uh, your father and him like being in the military and uh, just growing up. Um, what, were, what were your parents like? Cause obviously you're such like a, you're such a character and like such a people person. Like were, were your mom and dad like that? Or what, what kind of parents were they? My mom grew up on a farm right on the Iowa, Nebraska, South Dakota border. And she split when she was almost 17 to go to New York city to be a rocket during the war. And, you know, that didn't pan out. So she was working for Western union. My dad, son of two Greek immigrants that came from Crete. Um, his father worked in a coal mine in Wyoming and he was a great guy. He was a real family man. Um, had a great sense of humor. My mom instilled early on us the importance of education. I remember she used to read us every night for a half hour, 45 minutes. Um, and 
the greatest thing about my parents is they were very supportive of anything my brother and I did. I say my brother and I, I was the oldest of six. Wow. After my brother Bruce, who's two years younger than me, there was like an eight-year lag before the next four kids came. And it was almost like a different family. Yeah. But yeah, my parents, they were very supportive. And, and you know, I think my dad was initially kind of disappointed because, you know, my plan early on was I was going to play football all through college, you know, baseball, then maybe play in the NFL for five or six years. Then I was going to run for Congress. Then I was going to run for the Senate. Then I was going to be president. Yeah. Now you say that now and people either laugh until they fall onto the floor or they look at you like, what the fuck? Are you serious? <laughs> but this was the sixties and, and anything was possible. And I, you know, I worked for Bobby Kennedy on the Hill after college. I went back to law. I went to law school at Santa Clara. I knew early on this, this was not what I thought it was going to be, but I thought I'll finish out the year when McCarthy won in New Hampshire and Bobby declared for the presidency. I went stayed in law school, but went back to work for him, ended up in the ambassador hotel. We had won. We had just won the California primary. In fact, they had just announced that we had met maybe 30 minutes before, and we were all upstairs in suites. So we came down, freight elevator, went through the kitchen, came onto the podium. He gave his speech. We left the podium. I, I wasn't sure whether we were going back upstairs or somebody said there might be buses. And we might go to another hotel. As I, it was, we all started back through the kitchen. So I got to the door, it sounded like somebody let out a string of firecrackers. Yeah. And I remember my friend Bill Epridge was behind me. He had been on the on the campaign trail sporadically shooting for both Life and Time magazines. And he ran by me, knocked me into the door jam, yelling nine millimeter. Damn. And my first thought was, Oh, that's like a fisheye lens. I didn't even equate it with, you know, gunfire. <laughs> and I had taken maybe three or four more steps slipped and almost fell i remember had i grabbed somebody's shoulder and i we're in the kitchen i'm thinking it's cooking oil it was blood it turned out paul schrade who was with us he was a union organizer in california he had been shot and it was pandemonium and so at that point i had to fly back the next day from lax to sfo and then drive to santa clara where i had a final in contract and I remember getting off the plane and going through the terminal. And at that point, I heard that Bobby had died in the hospital. Jeez. And I was like, oh, what? I, I was numb. And I remember I got to school. I had my briefcase. I think I had eight blue books. I went, sat down. They passed out the tests. And, and it was, you know, one sheet mimeographed. And I sat there for five, 10 minutes. I don't know, you know, just kind of still stunned in a fog. And then I remembered in my wallet, I had these three little wax squares of headshots that you got in the base, top baseball cards. Remember I had a maze, a Marichal and a Clemente. And I took the Marichal out and I put the wax thing on the first blue book. I took a quarter and, you know, rubbed the quarter over the picture. And so now Juan's pictures on the thing. And then I drew a little balloon and 
I wrote in the balloon, Mike, this is all bullshit. And then I proceeded to fill seven or eight blue books with how America was fucked and murdered its leaders. And that was the end of law school. Yeah. Much to the chagrin of my parents. I remember my dad going, what are you going to do now, big shot? Yeah. Hey, well, it worked, and, out, it worked out, you know? <laughs> it did. It did. It, it definitely. And I, I really think that's what life's all about anyway. It's there's, you know, there's destiny for lack of a better word. And, you know, I was, and I, I say this all the time. I was lucky to be born when I was born, where I was born, to the parents I had were very supportive in the time I had. And then starting all of this, you know, the photography and, you know, when I, when I first, when law school ended, I really didn't know what I was going to do. Cause my dad said, what are you going to do now? Big shot. And I said, you know, I don't know, but I'll know when I see it. Yeah. And, uh, I dropped acid that first acid trip. I learned more than college law school, working for the Kennedys. And I, I knew because I'd read Huxley's doors of perception. Um, the author, John Hersey, had written a novel about an LSC trip. And I knew when I heard Revolver, I knew the Beatles had dropped. And at that point, I was, I was really both curious and searching. I was searching for self. I was searching for truth. And that first trip, it opened, it pulled back the curtain. It opened all the doors. And again, all of that means nothing if I wasn't born when I was born, where I was born, had the supportive parents. I mean, having that happen in San Francisco, as opposed to Salida, Kansas, that was different. Um, and then, you know, starting music when I did, because, you know, remember, this is 1968. Everything is changing. Mm -hmm. Our culture, movies, literature, the sexual revolution, fashion, it all was coming together at the same time. So, you know, I was caught up in this maelstrom of change, and it was very much like, you know, a new renaissance. And so all of that contributed. And, yeah, I was there, and I, I did certain things. But it was almost like I was, like, riding the wave. Yeah, I think, like, reading the book and, like, uh, I, I can kind of relate to some of it. I think, like, being uh, a freelance photographer, like like you have been for so long, and that's what I do, you have to have, I feel like there's just, like, a certain personality. Like, there's this, you, you don't quit. Like, there's just, like, a tenacity, and it's just, like, you have to be up for the challenge of, like, like, like reading in the book, like, your early days of like getting uh credentials for the 49ers was like calling up the PR director i think uh George McFadden and and faking an assignment just so you could get in the door <laughs> and it's just like yeah. you weren't you weren't going to take no for an answer you know well you know what alex i tell kid, i i tell kids young people that now i mean I, some guy called me like about a year ago he says hey man I want to be like you. How can I do it? And I go, I don't even know how I'm like me. And I said, and if I were starting out now, all of the things I did then, I don't think they would have worked. No. And it's a different world. Now, that being said, I believe this. I believe 
if you really want something bad enough, mm-hmm. I mean, you really have the desire, you'll find a way to make it happen. Um, however that is, and there's no formula, but the, you know, the bottom line is you've got to have that, you've got to have that burning fire, that desire to make it happen. And again, I had that, what I had then, it would be so much more difficult now. Mm-hmm. These are different times and it's, it's crazy. So in a way I feel blessed that I was, again, came up then. Yeah. Although I remember then I felt, God, I really missed it, man. I wish I would have been, I wish I would have been in Paris right after the war. Yeah, yeah. You know, anyway. And, <laughs> you know, cause it always, the other trip always seemed so much cooler. Yeah, it's it's all romanticized to some degree, um, yeah. but yeah, because even one of my favorite stories in the book is uh, I think it was like in 1978 you had to sneak in to the office of uh, Joe Thomas, who was I believe he, he what was oh, his? he was our GM, yeah, general manager. Because people at that point the checks weren't going out, like you guys hadn't been paid in a month, so like you had you had to sneak into his office to get your check, right? Well, no, I didn't. You know what? I didn't sneak into his office. He wouldn't open the door. And I knocked like three times. And the last time I knocked, it was like a DEA knock, <laughs> where when you hear that knock, you start, you know, cleaning your drawers and flushing toilets. Yeah. So I just opened it up. And he's behind his desk, kind of like looking at me like, what? And I said, hey, and I called him coach. I said, coach, listen, I know you're really busy. But I said, the reason I'm here, I said, you know, Dennis and I haven't been paid in eight weeks, and his landlord's ready to mm-hmm. evict him. But I said, no worries. I've got the two checks. I got them from payroll. I've got a pen here. You know, I had them on a clipboard. I said, all I need is you just to sign your name here, and I won't bother you anymore. Because, is that what this is all about? Money? Let's get the hell out of here. <laughs> and I thought, so I turned around, walked out, shut the door. I'm going down the stairs. Dennis is at the bottom of the stairs looking like he's going to cry. So I'm, I'm fucked. I'm going to be evicted. And I, I remember saying, you know what? Fuck him. Yeah. <laughs> and he was out to practice. And I sat down at, um, it was George. No, it was, it was still McFadden, McFadden's desk. And I kind of rummaged around. I knew he kept credentials in the top drawer. I was looking for some kind of a release with Joe Thomas's name on it. And I came across a mimeograph one. So I took that out, got his legal pad out, and I started writing, Joe Thomas, Joe Thomas, Joe Thomas. <laughs> so I get the signature right, and Dennis goes, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to sign the checks. He said, you, you can't do that. That's forgery. I said, do you want to be evicted? I'm signing mine. <laughs> <laughs> what did he ever find out that you did that or like what happened? Like, no, no, no. <laughs> no. That's nothing. Hey, that's something you put in a book 40 years later. I know. That's I know. Nothing you go. And, hey, motherfucker, <laughs> I signed my own check. So fuck you. <laughs> it was just so great. man. it's just like, it was an awesome story. And I, I was curious because in the book, like I obviously photographed 49ers for forever and then uh, you were photographed the Oakland Raiders for a long time. Like when you were photographing, like, cause at a certain point you were photographing both teams at the same time, right? Yeah. Because I wouldn't, you know, I wasn't traveling with the Niners on the road in those days. Mm-hmm. 
So, and, and, and usually when the Niners were on the road, the Raiders were at home and vice versa. And so I'd shoot the Raiders for NFL properties, Dave Box. And I loved, I mean, I grew up a 49er fan. I loved them. They were my favorite team. Initially, when the, you know, the Raiders, the new league, I thought that's a fucking bogus league. It's like almost semi-pro football. Well, they all, you know, they were in Super Bowl two playing the Packers. They had a good team, but not as good as the Packers. By the time I started covering them, they were fucking good. In fact, truth be told, they were better than the 49ers. 49ers weren't that good. Yeah. The Raiders were not only good, they were colorful. They were the gas house gang. And their fans were unbelievable. And they reminded me very much of the Baltimore Colt fans. And they, they were almost like sister cities. And the crowd was blue-collar, working-class, middle-class. And it was raucous. And it was a party. And their players were, I mean, they're right out of a movie. And it was fun to go over there. And it was, you know, it was a party and a celebration. And I was lucky doing all of that and doing rock and roll. It was like a nonstop party. I feel, you know, I, I told people then, I tell people now, I felt so lucky because I had a burning passion for what I did on all levels. I loved my gig. To the point where I thought, you know what? I feel like I've never had to, every day. I love getting up and doing all these things. I feel like I've never had to work a day in my life. And then there's the copy. And when I look at my bank account, I feel like I've never worked a day in my life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, you know. Eh, and, I, I think... and you know what the payment is? And I, I say this to you and any young photographer coming up. You want to do this? You better fucking love it. Yeah. It's not about the money. It's not about getting a house. And I'm not putting any of that down. You know, don't get me wrong. But for me, the payment then and the payment now has been in the doing. Mm -hmm. That was the payment. The experiences, the stories, the people. You can't. And you know what? Life goes by so quickly. And like I said before, the older you get, the faster it goes. I'm glad I have all of those experiences and memories much more than if I was in something that at best I tolerated at worst I hated. What would the money have bought me a big house, a better car for me? I don't care about that. Life is about people. It's about experiences. It's about, you know, doing, it's about living the novel. It's about being the movie. And that's why I've done all of this. More, more stuff is just more stress. It's more. It's another bill. Like outside of your basic needs of like obviously uh, somewhere to live and somewhere to eat, like you know obviously transportation, or whatever. But like anything above that to me is just like, yeah, whatever. You could buy this more fancy car, or whatever. But it's just, it's just gonna weigh you down more. <laughs> like, and that's his stress. You know, I don't, I don't want to live that way. Yeah. Well my age i think i've long passed that fork in the road mm-hmm. <laughs> or as yogi would say when i got to the fork in the road i took it <laughs> <laughs> um and you know i was interested in talking 
the because like I said, the Raiders photos. I really love the black and white stuff. Like when Madden was coach and um, like Cassidy's story he wrote about like traveling by train and I think like uh, you guys were like at a hotel and like you charged like uh, food and like a, a a razor to John Madden's like hotel bill. Like, what do you remember about like photographing Madden and like he just seemed like such a character like um, from from the words in the book. Well, he, I mean, that's what John was. He was a consummate character. You know, he grew up in Daly City. John Robinson and he were best friends. Um, he was, you know, the, the John Madden you see on TV, that's John. Yeah. And when Steve was with him on the train the first two years, he hated to fly. Yep. You know, that Al Pauly team he played on, mm-hmm. he was hurt and stayed behind. That was the team that crashed in the cornfield and half the guys were killed. Mm-hmm. That kind of uh, soured him on flying. I mean, he had to fly when he was a Raider head coach, but it, they took the train for two years, and then he got the bus. Yep. They would stop at all of these out-of-the-way places. I mean, small towns where you think you, when you get off the bus, you're walking into a Peter Bruegel painting. Mm-hmm. And he cultivated characters because he himself was the ultimate character, but he, he loved people, and that was John. And he was, he was, I mean, we loved to just sit around and we tell, we tell stories and, you know, our escapades, he'd go crazy and laugh. He'd tell his escapades. <laughs> well, and you know, that, that shaving story, Yeah, he was in a, you know, he had a suite, but he was in a production meeting and he says, yeah, I'm going to, I'll be in a production meeting. Just go in the room and wait, you know, and we knew it was going to be a while. So we came in there, there was like a, you know, a living room and then his bedroom, his bedroom looked like a fucking frat room, <laughs> you know, clothes strewn all over the place, towels. I mean, it looked like a bomb had gone off in the bathroom and Steve was hungry. So he ordered some coffee and I think he ordered a couple hamburgers. And I, I said, Hey, I need a shave. <laughs> there's no, there's, I, I looked around, there was no blades or anything. So I, I said, Hey, I needed some shaving cream up here, some razors. So I'm shaving. John walks in, sees the food. Say, ah, just make yourself at home. <laughs> so I see you, you know, you guys are, you guys are eating on me and, and you, what you, you ordered? So you, now I'm paying for your personal grooming. I said, John, relax. I said, you're not paying for this. I said, this is going to be on them. I said, and we just haven't, we're having hamburgers. We haven't ordered any steaks yet. Yeah. <laughs> and then the best was uh, Steve Cassidy, the writer. He he, he took John's rental car at, at a certain point, and they racked up like because that was before like unlimited miles on a rental car, and they racked up like three thousand dollars in like uh, fees or something. It said in the book. Well, and you know what? And John loved it. He was he was cracking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's all the characters. Then Al Davis, and he, he seemed like a character. Oh, Al was a real character. I mean, it's funny. He hated he hated the league almost as much as they hated him. And he was, I mean, he was a character right out of 1950s Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, there'll never be another person like him again. Yeah, I didn't realize, I didn't really look it up when I was researching him um, for this. He, he's, he was born in Brockton, Massachusetts, which is like a, salt of the earth town like that's where he was from you know who was you know who grew up in brockton 
the Brockton blockbuster, Rocky Marciano. Oh, wow. Didn't really and know. Skipper McNally, who we write about in the book, Steve writes about, and we hung with, he helped train Rocky. Although many of Skipper's stories were embellished, to say the least, but it didn't matter because they were embellished in such a great way. You know, you might be next to me and go, hey, this guy's full of shit. And I go, hey, shut up. This is a great story. Let him let him continue. <laughs> yeah, there was a, for, yeah. For anyone listening, Skipper McNally, there's like a, a a page in the book where he Skipper McNally was basically Al Davis's kind of like his friend or like right hand man, right? I mean, yeah, and Skipper's selling. He certainly was. Yeah, Al Al loved him because he was a character right out of that whole era, and um, you know they they cut a little piece out of the book Mm -hmm. because it was done in China and Cassidy was steamed as I was because the whole Raider front office was like that. Locusal was like that. And Locusal, before he was their PR man, he coached for two years at university of Pennsylvania. He coached their freshman football team. This is like 1949, 1950. And we were talking and he said, yeah, I coached the Penn team. And, he said, and I said, you know, it's funny. I wanted to go to Princeton, but they didn't have football scholarships. Yeah. And he said, yeah, I remember. Hey, I've got a good story. I remember we played Princeton in 1949. And I said, oh, at Palmer Stadium. He said, no, I, I was coaching freshmen. And see, in those days, college football, you couldn't play. You, you, your freshman year, mm-hmm. you played on the freshman football team, and you could scrimmage with the varsity. You couldn't yeah. play varsity until you were a sophomore. Yeah. He said, no, we had to play. He said the varsity played Princeton at Palmer Stadium at 2 o'clock. We played at 11 o'clock on the practice field. He said, so my guys are up 6 to nothing. <laughs> now we're getting ready for the second half. And, and Cassidy has the story in the book. Yeah. And then they cut it out. And he said, so we set the ball up. My guys are getting ready to kick off. And all of a sudden, this old man, this old professor in this corduroy coat with a briefcase, he starts trudging across the field, you know, flowing white hair. And I go, hey, hey, get off the field, you fucking cocksucker. We're trying to have a game here. And he said, somebody grabbed my arm and said, you can't talk to Professor Einstein that way. <laughs> and I said, Loki, that's the best story I've ever heard from you. That's all time. That's incredible. Yeah, there's so so many characters. Um in the in the in the book like because skip the things with skipper the, like i couldn't tell like did people like skipper or they didn't or, or i couldn't like from reading the well the, the people that the people that like characters didn't yeah. the nfl hated him. got it they were like they really hated him and um i think most women hated him i was gone one day you know we lived in the hate and he showed up knocked on the door chris had answered he goes hey honey skipper mcnally where's michael she says not here right now he just walked right past her walked into the bedroom said mind if i use your phone and she's like uh he's not going to be here for a couple hours yeah i just got to make a couple calls well how about giving me some coffee so he just like took over the house and she's like hey this asshole came by skipper mcnally and i said asshole he's a great guy (laughs) yeah another one of your friends that you call a great guy (laughs) that's incredible <laughs> uh, um, how are you doing on time? Are you good for a little bit more? Sure. All right. Sure. Cool. Um, and then you you had Joe, Joe Montana wrote the forward to the book. Like, um, what did that kind of mean to you? And like, what what is like your friendship with uh, Joe Man- 
Montana meant to you over the years? I mean, you know what? The great thing about Joe, first of all, him, him riding the forward meant everything to me because everybody hits Joe up for everything all the time. Mm -hmm. And I was all, I almost felt bad, you know, like, Hey, I don't, I don't need a favor, but you know, I'm doing this book and you know, and he says, yeah, no, God, I'll do it. Um, the fact that he wrote it, Joe today is the same guy that came to training camp in 1979. Mm-hmm. He's, he's humble. He's a prankster. He's a leader. He's, he's got that, that it quality, you know, like what I was talking about Brock Purdy, what Joe has, you can't learn, you can't teach, you can't look at him and try to emulate him. He's, he's fucking Joe Montana. Yeah, you got an amazing picture in the book, and he writes about it. It was him after winning uh, the Super Bowl, and it's like him and his father, and Joe's like sitting on the table in the locker room eating a like a hamburger, and uh, it was this kind of like intimate moment between him and his dad that he kind of wrote that really really meant something to him. Yeah, and that, you know that was actually after Super Bowl twenty three, twenty three or twenty four. Yeah, I mean, and senior was he was he loved his son. He was so proud of him. And um, it was great seeing the bond between them. I mean, imagine if you have your son and this is how he ends up. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, yeah. No, Joe, Joe's, Joe's one of a kind. And you know what? He's still going strong. It, you know, he was, uh, he was representing us at the coin flip in the championship. The Lions had Barry Sanders. And so we're on the bench getting ready to go out there and the captains were getting ready to line up and two of the officials came over and they wanted their pictures taken with Joe. <laughs> so, and I said, and Joe goes, Hey, points to me is watch out for this motherfucker. And I said, yeah, I said, Hey, just do one thing. Don't fucking lose the coin flip because if you do, we're going to have to waste a draft pick on a gambler. And we all started laughing. And then he goes out and that's, that was Joe day one, Joe all through the time he played Joe now. Yeah, I, I love this. He story. was a listen. He he was a prankster when he played. I remember we were somewhere, and he it was in nineteen ninety or ninety one when he he was injured for about five games, and so he Teddy Walsh, there are three or four players that came with us. We go into a club and it was jammed, and people are on the dance floor and. All of a sudden, people are going like, oh, God, oh, man. People walking off. He had brought those little stink bomb pellets <laughs> and, thing and put them on the floor. He was, he was going crazy. Another time, I remember we were on the plane, and Seifert was coming back to see us. And as he passed, Joe, Joe goes, Coach, want a stick of gum? And George goes, uh, oh, yeah, Joe. Reached out as he pulled the thing out, a cap went off. Schaefer jumped, and he was—I could tell—and he was pissed. And Joe, just, just like a little kid, he was yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> "I love the story." He was sitting on the end zone, or no, he's sitting on the bench, and uh, 
they have those phones on the sideline and he just decided to pick it up to see if you could make a phone call on it in the middle of the game and he like called his wife in the middle of the game from the sideline phone. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. No, that definitely <laughs> happened. Yeah. Pretty or like our last drive in, in twenty three when we started I think on the seven yard line and there's a couple minutes to go and guys are in the huddle. Yeah. Guys are kind of nervous and Joe walks in from, you know, talking to Bill on the bench and he said he stopped and looked up and he goes, Hey Bar. Hey, Harris, check it out. Look up in the stands. That's John Candy. (laughs) (laughs) Incredible. Uh, And looking at the work, one thing I was kind of curious about, like so much of the work in the book was shot on film. Um, Is is there anything you miss about working with film? Like back in the day, because like so much of your your archive is film. Obviously, you shoot digital now. Um, But is there anything you miss or kind of about film? I miss, I want to say everything. I miss most everything. I miss, I miss having the physical eight by 10 or 11 by 14 or 16 by 20 prints. I miss the slides. I miss looking at proof sheets where you had, you know, 36 black and white frames on a sheet you could go through. There's nothing like that now. It's all, it's all on the computer. It's all out there in the ethernet. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, that being said, you and I both know Progress is progress. Yep. They're not waiting on you to like it or, you know, anything like that. Nah. You just deal with it. Um, there are things I can do with a digital camera. I can shoot in a low light level. In a, I mean, we could be in a room right now. It's completely dark. And you could strike a match, hold it up to your face. Mm-hmm. I can shoot it, and it'll it'll look great. Yep. You could never do that with black and white film. Or back in the um, day, you'd have to have multiple cameras if you wanted multiple speed films. Like now it's just like, yeah, turn the ISO whenever you want. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, that being said, um, 49ers took some of, I mean, now it's all color. Yeah. And you, but you can make it into black and white. But when you, when you do that, it's not the same. It looks flat. It looks gray. It doesn't pop. Doesn't have the grain. Um, it doesn't have that grain. Doesn't have the grain. Oh, well, and the other thing is, as good as the colors can look, there's nothing that pops the way Kodachrome 64 or Kodachrome 25. It looks so great. It was. It was just different. Yeah. And, well, what were your I mean, What were your films? What were the films you used a lot, like back in the day, like when you were shooting games and stuff? I used. In daylight, I used Tri-X. I'd always bring two or three rolls of Plus X, if it's black and white. And then I'd have maybe six rolls of Kodachrome 64, you know, when the sun's at your back, because it's just brilliant. And then Fuji 100, and sometimes Fuji 400, but when you pushed it, it was a little too little too blue green Mm -hmm. and toward the end of film kodachrome came out with kodachrome 200 yeah and you could actually push that two to two and a half stops so it looked great in the locker room and it looked great under the lights really looked dynamite because when you're shooting a game back then like like how many roles were you like bringing to a game and shooting like usually i'd shoot 
probably 20 to 24 to 25 rolls of black and white, you know, depending Damn. on the action. Yeah, it's a lot. If there's a lot a- more running, there's, a, you know, you, you, you shoot less because it eats up clock. And then I'd shoot anywhere from 8 to 10 to 12 rolls of color. As we got into the early 90s for the magazines, they wanted they wanted color, whether it was SI or Sport Magazine or yep. Inside Sports or, you know, uh, Pro Magazine. And I always preferred to shoot the locker room in black and white because it felt black and white. Mm-hmm. It, it was evocative of the mood. And I thought it was very important. And I, I, I always use the example of, you know, you look at a movie like On the Waterfront or The Hustler, um, they're black and white films. That's what, that's what the esthete is. That's what the mood is. I said, you take a movie like The Hustler and a very similar movie, the same genre, Cincinnati Kid, which was in color, both dynamite movies, but the black and white just, it said more. Mm-hmm. It was much more dramatic. And I miss that because, you know, when you convert digital color to black and white, it's not the fucking same. I'm sure if I work 20 minutes on a, you know, each yeah. print and Photoshop, but I mean, who has the time to do that? No. Yeah. Even, I even liked in the book, you, it was obviously they scanned some prints because you could see like the filed negative carrier on some of the photos and stuff, which was really cool in the book. Yeah. And I, and I you know, I, I did that all the time. And also, you know, you can do proof sheets. Mm-hmm. You can't do that anymore. Um, I love doing proof sheets and, I, and I've done, you know, both in, in, um, my music stuff and, and in football too, you, I've blown like proof sheets up to, you know, 20 by 24. It looks great. You see the whole, you have the story, especially if it's a used proof sheet and you've marked, you see your markings on it and everything. It tells a story and then it transcends from be being a picture to an artifact. Mm. Because were you, were you like a darkroom guy? Did you like printing and stuff back in the day? Oh, initially I did. I mean, it was, you know, when I, I again, not ever going into film school. Yeah. I had a guy that worked in a camera shop come for two days and teach me how to print in the darkroom. Well, it, you know, it's like anything else. Even if somebody teaches you, it takes really a couple months of you doing it all the time. And then it was about the papers that you used. <clears throat> I mean, most of my friends would use Kodak. They, my friend Dennis would call, oh, you've got to use Kodak paper. It's the yellow god. <laughs> and he used, he used the, you know, the different filters for the gradation. Yep. I hated their paper. It looked flat. You know what it looked like? It looked like black and white digital now. Yeah. I And I favored, I loved Patriga Rapid. Um you know, German paper. Um, I loved Ilford because I wanted my pictures to have more pop. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, my, my photo school was Italian Vogue, French Vogue, Zoom Magazine, Der Spiegel. I loved the way the Europeans did photojournalism yeah. and the way they laid out their photography. And I wanted my prints to look like that. That's the whole thing of filed out negative carrier. That's I got that from them. Yeah, I, I people say you. And people say you can't do that in sports, and I go fuck you. You can do whatever you want. There are no rules. Yeah, that is you know? the truth. Like people, even like it, I mean, I find myself sometimes with that. Like 
with equipment and whatever like people start to think like oh you got to have the new camera to because that's what everyone's using now but it's like no like it's all at a certain point once you learn the basics it's all about and for me it's like your perspective and like your storytelling ability or whatever it's uh yeah it's you can't it's endless like you can do whatever you want like look at david burnett like that dude's out here still shooting like like four by five like press cameras and shit like in congress which is just like incredible to see sure oh yeah, yeah. well I mean, and, and walter's stuff too i mean there, and there are different people i think i think we all borrow steal ideas mm-hmm. whether you're a photographer whether you're a cinematographer whether you're a writer, a painter, you take what what really resonates to you. And I, I've always thought, Alex, when you see something that really knocks you out and what really, you know, you love, whether it's a book you're reading or a movie you're watching or a photo, you're recognizing yourself yep. in that. And, and you can certainly pick that one or two or three things out and then put your own spin on it that's what art's all about yeah that's what it's me like walter yost like he was an early guy for me like in college like seeing his work like the like incredible like black and white portraits which i think he was like shooting on like that huge like polar like 20 by 24 polaroid camera like he had like i think some like incredible portraits like muhammad ali and like uh i think joe frazier and it, that shit just like blew my mind wait till you see when it's done, he's doing a book yeah. with Tasha on yeah. Michael Jordan. That's, oh, it's going to be and Jordan. It, yeah. And it's going to have, I mean, a number of things you've certainly seen before, but other things you haven't seen that you're going to go, Oh shit. Yeah. I'm excited for that for sure. Uh, His book on, you know, remember the softback book? I'm, I can see it all in my head. I can't think of the name, the sporting life. Okay. Yep. I always said, I said, Walter, this should have been, much bigger, hardback. I said, "This is fucking brilliant." Yeah, that's what I was. That, that's what I was. Tell, yeah, that's what I was telling Manjin is because like, like Walter, he hasn't had a book in a long time. It was like more like in the '90s and stuff when he shot all the Jordan stuff. And the books are cool, but like he needs like like the book, your book, like we were talking about this. The level of like design and the text and the storytelling like all that together it, this made it so incredible with the photos you know i'm i'm guessing this book is going to be that book yeah because talk bears no expense and you know in walter's defense when he was putting out a lot of those books he was working all the time yeah, yeah so he didn't have time to like go and if i was working all the time i couldn't have done my book the football book the way it was mm-hmm. that was Years of fucking being closeted, just yeah. you know, doing nothing. Yeah, it's kind of better wait, and you, now you got all this stuff to go through. Um, and uh, another photo that like blew my mind that you were there in the book was the photo of Whitney Houston singing the national anthem at the 1991 Super Bowl, which for me is like that was like one of the most iconic national anthems ever. Yeah, I you know what again I. You never know what's going to happen or how history is going to treat it, but I was in the right. I knew where the anthem was going to be. I was, I think, right in front of the Giants bench, and nobody was supposed to be there. But I thought, you know what? I just kind of 
wormed my way in and shot the picture and it all worked out yeah and you can see in the right in the right hand corner you can see a marlboro cigarettes ad which is just like you never see that anymore uh which that was interesting looking at the photo oh sure well that you know that's what's great anytime you see anything like that even now mm-hmm. it's nothing now in 20 years it it dates the picture and the era and it adds to everything yeah and uh, do you think we'd ever see, because you spent so many years shooting the uh, baseball, do you think you'd ever do a baseball book with all the A's stuff? Or, Well, I'm going to do a baseball book, I hope, if I have the energy. Yeah. And it'll have A's stuff, too. But, I, you know, I started out doing the Giants. And I've got tons of pictures of all the other guys that I shot the same way I shot the Raiders, Doc Ellis, and, you know, with, with great stories. I mean, I've got Doc Ellis after, you know, when I first met him, I'm at the cage with Richie Hebner and we're, you know, we're just bullshitting. All of a sudden I hear, Hey, 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 hippie, hippie motherfucker. <laughs> and I thought there was a hippie. This is like 1972, 73. I had real long hair, but I thought there was a hippie behind me. I turn around. There's nobody. I, I look back. He said, hippie. I said, are you talking to me? He said, I don't see any other hippie here. I said, Hey, I'm hip, but I'm not a hippie. He goes, whatever. He said, you know where I can get me some good weed? And I said, oh, now I'm a dope dealer? He said, man, I hope so. And I said, hey, man, I'm a consumer just like you. He said, you know where I can get some good weed? And I said, I can make some calls. He said, well, go make them. And I said, hey, I'm fucking working right now. Yeah. I said, wait till after VP. So I went up there. You know, those days pay phones. I came back, and they're leaving the field. And I said, Doc, I said, a friend of mine. Has, it actually, it's got some stuff, and it's really good. He said, how much? I said, $15 for a lid. And he said, go get it. I said, I'm shooting the game. I can bring it tomorrow. But he, I said, you've got to have cash, and I need a pirate hat. And so, so, I, you know, we did the deal. I brought it into him. The next time they came in, and in those days, you played every team twice, twice at home, twice on the road. So I came back, came back in in August, and you walked in the Pirate Clubhouse, and everybody's got a different boombox going, and it's like a party. Yeah, I couldn't I couldn't find Doc, and I, I saw Madlock over there. And I said, Doc, where's uh, where's Doc? He said, Oh man, he's in the training room. Doc comes out. He's got his hair in these little pink curlers, like little sisters used to wear in the second and third grade. Yeah, and he sees me, and he goes, Hey man. You got any more of that good weed? And I'm like, oh, bro, what the fuck? You know? And then I noticed he's got a we- two big bombers, wheat straw, one over each ear. So he takes one and just flips it on the floor, skids across to me, just as Bill Burden, the manager, is coming out of the bathroom. And I remember I turned around, my heart was beating, and I didn't run out of the clubhouse, but I heel and towed it. Yeah. And in Candlestick, you leave the visiting clubhouse you go down a long runway and it lets you out in the right field corner where the giant bullpen is. And so I, I go out that door and then I go up the right field line to the cage where the giants are just finishing batting practice and get my heart's beating. And 15 minutes later, here comes doc and he's got a big park on and he goes, Hey man, you went running out of there like a scared little bitch. I said, are you nuts? 
yelling about good weed and then flipping me a joint in front of your manager. And he, he goes, fuck Verdon. I do what I want to do. I said, <laughs> said, yeah, you can. So I'll have that picture and then that story in the book. And uh-huh. it'll be, it'll be like that. I want it to have the same feel. Yeah. But that's going to, that'll take a couple of years to put together. I'm definitely looking forward to that one. Buzzy, uh, I could talk to you all day, but I know you're a busy week for you. So I'll let you get back to it. But, um, and- Good luck, good luck editing this. Nah, no editing, man. We get it raw, dude. I love it. Um, All right. But I appreciate you uh, taking the time to do this and just really just appreciate your enthusiasm for photography and everything. So I can't thank you enough. No, it's been a pleasure and an honor to be on the show, Alex. So there you have it. That was the Michael Segaris special Super Bowl episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I know I really enjoyed speaking to Michael. Um, can't thank him enough for taking the time to come on the podcast uh so much respect for his work and this the enthusiasm and passion um that he's brought to his photography for so many years and still out there doing it um this mad respect can't thank him enough for taking the time to come on the podcast definitely go check out michael's instagram at michael Segaris, and definitely go pick up a copy of his book field to play which is his body of work documenting 60 years of the nfl incredible photography and stories i'll put the link in my description you guys can go check it out and as always thanks so much for listening and take care